right, hello, and welcome to Impeach Pod, a Donald Trump podcast. My name is Kyle Hayes, and I'm your host, and I'm joined again by Luke Boggs. Luke, how are you doing? Oh, God, we're lame. We're so lame. <laughs> no, we're the only podcast that can make this pun, so I want to do it. Um, so on this week's episode, we are going to be talking about all of the latest in Donald Trump's uh, mess with Russia and whether or not him or aides to him colluded or otherwise worked with Russians in uh, during the 2016 election and what the fallout of that is potentially going to be for his presidency and for the constitutional order as we know it. And then for our second topic this week, we are going to talk about the emerging contest on the Democratic side for the governorship of Georgia between the two Stacys, Stacey Abrams and Stacey Evans. Both Stacys are now announced and in the fight for the Democratic nomination for governor of Georgia. So we're going to talk about how that race is going to develop, if we see any other candidates jumping in, and what it means for Democrats in Georgia going forward. Um, so we're just going to dive right into it today because we are together. Uh, you're going to hear a second episode of us where we are together. Luke is in D.C. with me, and we decided we'd just record a whole bunch while we got together. So uh, you're going to hear from us um, a lot on some of these topics over the next couple of weeks. Uh, but yeah, let's just dive into the Russia stuff, Luke. Why don't you just set the table for our listeners a little bit? I'm sure people are kind of familiar with the mess that's gone on on the Russia stuff, but what are just a few of the details to set the table as we start this discussion? I think the most important thing to think about when we think about the Russia situation is the fact that we always refer to it as the Russia situation. <laughs> it's always the Russian thing. And in a lot of ways, it's actually similar to Watergate, how... Watergate was a single instance that was a break into a hotel room that was the Democratic, you know, headquarters for the, you know, 1972 race. But that started to actually expand and cover a lot of other things. That's kind of how this Russia thing works, where there's all these other things that are going on and happening, but are somewhat related to the greater Russian question. And so they all kind of get lumped in together. If there are two things that we've learned in the past couple weeks that I think is the most important in thinking about that is that Robert Mueller has been uh, appointed as a special counsel for this investigation. Um, for those of you who don't know who he is, and I want to get into him a little bit more as we discuss this, he is the former FBI director. He was the FBI director before James Comey, and he actually got confirmed and started the job of FBI director a week before 9-11. Wow. So, yeah. So Robert Mueller had a rough go from the beginning, and he was so vital to the FBI and really helping turn that organization around that Obama practically begged him to stay on for two more years. And so... Uh, since FBI directors have had the 10-year term, uh, he's the only one that's actually finished it, and he even went beyond it by two years. And so he was FBI director for a total of 12 years um, and pretty much highly respected on both sides. So he his appointment is critical to this whole situation and I think is definitely uh, one of the most important things looking forward. The other thing is, is through leaks, not from Mueller and his investigation, but from uh, various sources, both in the administration and in the Justice Department and FBI, it is incredibly clear that several members of Trump's upper-level team are part of this investigation. 
most notably and from a variety of sources uh his son-in-law and also man that's going to solve every problem in the world uh jared kushner uh is a like special special person of interest and that they're putting a lot of attention on him so those are the two things that i think are the most important when thinking about this and you know we're not we i don't want us to do a tiktok of the russia thing because one it becomes out of date so quickly and two, other people probably would do it better than we could. So look into the Washington Post, look into the New York Times. And really, when it comes to this situation, more than almost any other, I would suggest reading a ton of sources on it and kind of getting a bigger view of everything that's going on because it is so quick and changing that it's hard to keep it all in your head at one time. It's also these outlets are putting it together piece by piece, it feels like. Like, you got the the week of, um, the last week of May, right before Memorial Day, you got the sort of daily news update at five o'clock where there was another bombshell to drop in this case. And like one would come from Washington Post and one would come from New York Times. And so it is, it's getting pieced together as they go through this process. And I don't think that is uh, accidental because to me, what this seems like is a coordinated response from people in the current bureaucracy that are making sure that this investigation doesn't die. Because it seems to me that every time a significant change in personnel or policy comes through the pike, that we see these leaks. You know, it's not irrelevant to me that, like, very soon after that James Comey was fired, that his memo that uh, popped up saying that Donald Trump kind of asked him to just let the whole Michael Flynn investigation go after they had let Michael Flynn go, um, popped up, you know, within a week of him getting fired. Like that's not a coincidence that that happens. So Kyle, I know you have said to me that you sometimes don't understand the importance of the Russia stuff in the larger context of what's going on and that you, don't follow it as closely as I do. So what would you like us to talk about when it comes to this? And what sort of things do you think would be helpful in you placing this in priority when you think about this administration? Well, I think when I think back to the campaign, I think about Hillary Clinton's decision to make the case against Donald Trump based on his temperament and his ability to do the job as president. And that case for the people that love Donald Trump just completely fell flat. And part of the reason for that is that Donald Trump, at least to his own people, convinced them that everything that was not flattering about him was biased fake news that they didn't need to pay attention to. He's using the same strategy on the Russian investigation. And I think that it's not something... I mean, I know his people would follow him all the way through impeachment if it came to that. No, I also kind of disagree a little bit with that. Because, yes, that's the argument that he made, but I don't necessarily know if his voters believe that. I think his voters just don't care. Like, I think fundamentally a lot of his supporters, they they just don't care. Like, they don't care if he sexually assaulted women. They don't care if he doesn't know what he's doing. What they care about is the fact they think at the end of the day, yeah, Donald Trump is an idiot, but, like, he's my idiot and that, like, he cares about me and cares about the things that's going to help me and affect my family and that Hillary Clinton, while she might be better at doing the job, she's going to pursue things that are fundamentally going to be against my interests. So I'd rather have someone who's going to work 
for me, but being idiot then work against me. Who's really competent. Yeah. And I, I think another piece of this too, is that, I mean, I've said before on the show that I don't actually feel, I don't think that we're going to find some smoking gun where Trump was coordinating directly with Putin. I don't know that we're going to find that his aides were coordinating directly with Putin. I think if we found like real concrete collusion that actually you could argue shifted the elect the election results and and really like solidly proved that Donald Trump was an illegitimate president, then I think it would be a different conversation. I just think it's going to be more muddy than that. Um, and for that reason, I think it's not going to be, you know, effective in the way that focusing on other issues is effective. And so, you know, when you think about like the Rachel Maddow's of the world and you think about cable news and and social media and the way in which it is sort of like sounding the alarms about every little detail that comes out about this investigation into Trump and his associates, I don't know that lighting our hair on fire every single day about those things is super productive. And I think that there is some wisdom in just allowing this uh, investigation or series of investigations from different entities in the federal government to just kind of take its course. And part of the reason that I think about that is there's a lot of pressure from the left, from progressive activists on the ground to have, you know, particularly when some of this stuff about Trump's reasoning for firing Comey being that he thought there was no reason for um, the Russia investigation because there's nothing there and, and Comey is just being a pain by continuing it. This was like the smoking gun that you know, Matt Iglesias at Vox has argued that that alone is enough to impeach Donald Trump. And progressive activists have sort of sounded the same tone and said, well, Senate Democrats need to stop everything right now. This is an illegitimate president who has obstructed justice in the same way that Nixon did, and he needs to be impeached, and we need to light everything on fire in the meantime, or stop everything, stop all processes, because this is a constitutional crisis. And I just don't feel that we're actually at that level. And I think that sort of alarmism over every little minor detail and all this buildup of pressure to you basically kick Donald Trump out of office, um, I'm not sure that that's productive for for our political discourse, for liberals, for... I mean, I'm not sure it's productive really at all. I mean, I don't think it is either. Cause, and, th- and this is one thing I want to like very critically highlight, make it very obvious, put it on a neon sign as we continue this discussion. I do not and would never advocate that impeaching Donald Trump or stopping Donald Trump through some extra political force is a smart strategy or a strategy that the Democratic Party should start to employ, especially when it comes to trying to win the 2018 election, because I think at the end of the day, it is a parallel argument to Donald Trump is incompetent and that most of the voters are going to just not listen to you if that's the argument you're going to make and that you have to focus on policy and what decisions he's going to make that will change your life because at the end of the day if Donald Trump is raising your wages making your health care cheaper and you know keeping the United States safe I mean, I don't think a lot of people care what he did in the campaign and who he was talking to with Russia. Like, they don't care because their life has been, you know, made better uh, during, you know, his presidency. So we need to make the argument, which is very true, that Donald Trump is not going to act in your best interest. And the Russia thing can be part of it. 
a very small part of it, but cannot be the main thing. Now, when it comes to burning down the government, shutting everything down because of the things he's done, I actually sort of believe that in some ways that is an appropriate response because of how insane what he's doing is and how dangerous it is. But at the same time... Actually, can I interrupt you yeah, real yeah, quick? Please, I please. just want to say, so why is that a better alternative than just allowing the investigation to take its course? Well, I think that's, that, that's the decision that's, point yeah, that's, that's, that's where I was going to get to. Because if I was in government right now, I would be like, this is a five-alarm fire because it's quite clear in, uh, that he has done things that obstruct justice. The thing that makes it complicated with Donald Trump is he's made it very clear that he literally has no idea what he's doing yeah. because he doesn't understand what he's doing. Like the, the greatest thing in this certain investigation was like the fact that he was like genuinely surprised that people were upset with him that he fired James Comey. Like he has just heard Republicans and Democrats really talk negatively about Comey, talk about how crappy his decision making was. And he's like, everyone hates this guy. We should just get rid of him. I don't like him either. You know, I, everyone seems to hate him. And like, he did not connect the dots that like James Comey is the person that also is doing the Russia investigation. And that while so many other people had problems with him about everything else, pretty much everyone believed that he would do the Russia investigation well. And so when he fires him, Trump's like, I'm just firing this guy because everybody hates him. I don't like him. And like, he doesn't make the connection that he's part of the Russia investigation. And so, so because Trump goes out of his way to do things that seem, you know, like he is messing with that process that should handle the balance of powers and handle when a president's doing things that are illegal, like that is what makes, I think, the reaction be a little bit heavier. Now, if it wasn't for the appointment of a special prosecutor, I'm sorry, a special counsel, because there's actually a difference between the two. Um, I would be a bit more on the burn it down side. But as of right now, we have Robert Mueller, who is the special counsel for the Russia investigation. And while he is not 100% independent in the way that Kenneth Starr was when he was investigating Whitewater and had the ability to expand the investigation into Michael Lewinsky, of all things, he still has a fair degree of independence. And you know how the structure works is that he actually is reporting to the acting attorney general for the case since Jeff Sessions recused himself, uh, the deputy attorney general... Uh, Rosenstein? Yeah, Rosenstein is his boss. And so under any other circumstance, it would be Jeff Sessions, but since Jeff Sessions recused himself, it's the deputy attorney general. And, and Rosenstein appointed him, right? Correct. And that is a decision that he can make you know, by himself, and he also... Uh, could fire him by himself. And so technically speaking, that means he's still in the chain of command to Trump. So if Trump fired the deputy attorney general, he could then appoint someone to fire Robert Mueller uh, for incredibly obvious reasons. That would be like political suicide to try to do that right now. Uh, but we'll see. We'll see if that's an eventual move that he tries to make. And that's uh, pretty much what Nixon ended up doing as well uh, during the Watergate. Uh, I would stuff. note. I would note that there is some tension there because Rosenstein reportedly was very pissed at Donald Trump essentially throwing Rosenstein under the bus after they had written 
this the outline the argument for firing Comey as it related to how he treated Hillary Clinton's emails during the 2016 election, which is just <laughs> terribly yeah, ironic I, excuse. But I th- I think that's why this happened. Like to me, this seems in a direct response to his because and this is something that you know a lot of people didn't really realize is like Rosenstein got pretty much nastily appointed to this position. Like, think about that. This is the Trump administration where everyone is yelling at the Democrats to stop Trump, don't let him do anything, be as obstructionist as possible, burn the government down. And even under that environment where every single thing you do gets questioned, this dude, like, flew through. No problems. So he had a pretty legitimately bipartisan reputation, and this whole episode really put a lot of pressure on him. So I'm not surprised that this is what he went with. Now, the thing I would say, and you know, obviously I don't know every prosecutor in the United States, but if I was in Rosenstein's position to appoint someone, I could not imagine anyone better than Bob Mueller to do it. Um, part of the reason I say that is because of a uh, 2004 episode that has been uh, talked about a lot, but uh, just to review it quickly, uh, in March of 2004, the Attorney General, John Ashcroft, ruled that Stellar Wind, which was a domestic intelligence program, was illegal. And then, like, a day later, he was hospitalized with pancreatitis, and basically President Bush sent uh, the future Attorney General, Albert Gonzalez, and his chief of staff, and Dick Cheney, to his hospital bed to try to get him to reverse the decision while he's, like, drugged up in a haze. And uh, believe it or not, James Comey is one of the people that went to back up Ashcroft and make sure that something didn't happen. And Comey working, you know, to try to get um, the administration to back down on this, one of the people he called to help him out was Bob Mueller. Um, There's a great article in Politico uh, called What uh, Trump Needs to Know About uh, Comey and Mueller. Uh, I highly suggest you read that because it really lays out both of their qualifications and this episode in particular. But basically, Comey got Mueller and a couple other high-level Justice Department officials to commit to stepping down from their positions if they they went with reauthorizing Stellar Wind. Um, so obviously, the administration did not do that. So Mueller has proven himself already that he is willing to step down in a public way uh, go against things that he thinks are not right. So he has a reputation that will be pretty hard to combat. Um, both Republicans and Democrats, again, in one of the rare cases of unity we've seen these days, have said that like Bob Mueller is perfect to do this. Um, there's two things I would like to say. Uh, one is, if Trump did nothing wrong, if nobody on his team did anything wrong, then Bob Mueller is the best thing to ever happen to them. Because... He will do this investigation incredibly thoroughly. He will not, his team will probably not leak out much. It's going to be boring, I said, I think. I might be wrong, but that's my thought. And he will chase every league and look under every rock. And if he finds nothing, he will write an incredibly detailed report of how this is a big nothing burger and mm-hmm. that everyone should move on. Uh, and the other thing is, it, the flip side is true as well. That if you did something wrong, then Bob Mueller's your worst nightmare. Oh, yeah. Be, because, you know, he came to the FBI with the assumption that he was going to be leading an organization that was focused on crime, focused on drugs, gangs, stuff like that. 
and then ending up becoming like the front lines for dealing with terrorism in the United States. Um, and the fact that he was able to do that successfully and keep everyone's respect and was willing to stand up for what he believed in, I think makes him the perfect person to handle this investigation. And I believe that if whatever resolution he comes to in this investigation, it, if he's unimpeded will probably be pretty close to the truth. And it'll be hard for anyone to combat that. So it's made me think that this is an investigation that is going to be pretty done successfully. And so what will be interesting to see is how nicely that investigation can play with in particular, the Senate investigation into this, because while the house investigation has basically just been a dumpster fire, uh, like much else of the United States, um, house of representatives, the Senate has actually been pretty successful with the, you know, uh, chairman of the Senate intelligence committee, Richard Burr working incredibly closely with, uh, democratic Senator, uh, Mark Warner. And very few complaints have come out of that one besides the fact that it's just been very slow, but no one has complained much beyond that. So, I think what, what we're going to see happening is that we're going to have two somewhat slow investigations. And the only last thing I'd, I'd point out is the thing that is sort of unfortunate about the Robert Mueller investigation is that it is going to be boring by the book and uh, not answer questions to the public in the way that I think we want right now because we want someone to come out and be like, look, guys, this is what happened. This is the person that called this person and crimes were or were not committed. That's not like the mandate of this investigation or any other investigation that the justice department would do. It's not going to answer all the questions of what happened and why this matters. It's basically answering one question. Were crimes committed? And if not, I don't care. And we're, you know, no, no more discussion needed. Whereas the Senate investigation, much like the nine 11 commission or the Kennedy assassination commission, like, it is there to find answers to like what the hell happened. So at the end of the day, um, we very well might get more answers out of the Senate than Robert Mueller in the what happened area. But if people are going to jail, then it's going to be from Mueller. Do you think there's any downside politically for Democrats if this investigation does turn up nothing? I mean, I'm thinking about the... Bill Clinton impeachment process that was largely seen as unfair unless you were a hardline conservative Republican at the time. And then, you know, Bill Clinton, and then unfortunately for Hillary, she kind of got tagged with this too. There was this sense among people who really hated the Clintons that they were criminals who just continued to get away with it. And I think liberals, you know, particularly, you know, really far left liberals have just sort of already decided that Donald Trump is guilty. He may not be guilty of the specific things he's been charged of on the Russia stuff or not charged, but the the claims that people have made, but just the fact, you know, his entire presidency is representative of him being guilty of things that hardline progressives don't like. Um, So is there a danger of overreacting? You think? I think there is. And what makes it really complicated is that a lot of people that I talk to and see like, they feel like Donald Trump not only did illegal things to become president, it's just that like even if he didn't, he should not be president. He should be impeached because he is so 
just incredibly bad at being president and that he is a danger to the country holding this power just because of his personality and the beliefs that he has about the world. And so a lot of times like the Russia thing is almost secondary to those primary concerns that like his views are so backwards that he shouldn't be president because of that. And then the Russia thing is an example of why his views are so bad. I would also add too that particularly from, you know, the group represented at like the women's March that a lot of the animating energy for that has been that, you know, while it may be legal for, for instance, for ICE to deport people who are undocumented, that it's wrong that no human being is illegal and that it is wrong to deport people from this country. And so that there are things in which Donald Trump is allowed to do because he is president and because he is enforcing the law. Um, but that progressives and, and people concerned about a lot of like civil rights issues think that the laws are fundamentally wrong and that by Donald Trump not just willingly sort of flouting or, or kind of using his administrative or like his prosecutorial discretion in the way that you know Barack Obama did, particularly around immigration, that that he is violating you know more basic rights that may not be in the law right now, but that they believe should be a part of the law. And more importantly, that he's pushing that the law is too like soft right now. <laughs> like yeah. the law should be tougher. Um, the other thing I, I I would say, and I think this is really important, is that if the investigation somehow gets impeded that like Trump fires every deputy attorney general that pops up until he finds someone that will fire Robert Mueller, which would be a pretty tough task. That is sort of when you really need to, you know, sound the alarm until then. I think we're in a situation where it's, it's not emotionally satisfying to pursue this, but like this investigation is probably going to be done right. And that we need to have a little bit of faith in the system that it's going to work out because the thing is, and this is critically important. Like when you watch all the president's men or you read the book or you read any book about Watergate or watch any documentary about Watergate, every like moment of that, you know, piece of work basically is like nudging you in the shoulder saying, Hey, that Nixon guy's going down. And like, it's very obvious that that's going to happen. But if you talk about people about like what they thought about the time or read something like Washington journal, which is a book by Elizabeth drew, that is like her notes of what was going on like day by day. It's not obvious at all. And it's like a shock when it actually finally happens. And so much happens between Watergate, the hotel breaking and Nixon resigning that took two years, <laughs> two years. And that is basically what I think we're in for. Like, I think we're in for a pretty long drawn out process of whatever happened is going to take time to materialize because, you know, like we're still finding out stuff about Michael Flynn. And that was three months ago that he left the administration, but still stuff is coming out about him. So I think this is going to be a very long, drawn-out thing, and it cannot be our everyday thing, because no matter how many treasonous acts were committed, and I'm not saying they were, but if they were, like that can't be our everyday focus, because it's not all that the country is about, and we need to have arguments about policy, we need to have arguments about 
what our vision for the future is because we don't want to fall into the trap of just being anti-Trump because then you start getting into the conspiracy theory realm. You start getting into the point of view that like nothing he does is right. Everything is wrong. Constant opposition that puts us in a dangerous place if we're ever in power again, because then we'll be in the same situation as the Republicans that we spent so much time bashing Trump that we actually don't have our own vision for what the country should be. So the other, the other piece of that I would note too is particularly as it relates to the timing and, and how long this process might take framing the American public right now as living under a constitutional crisis to me doesn't seem super productive because of how long this will take. I mean, it's a, it's a fundamental core and I don't say this to defend Donald Trump, but it is a fundamental core value of our justice system in this country that you are innocent until proven guilty. And I think that that standard should apply and that we don't just sit here and assume guilt, even though he's done a ton of things that, you know, don't look great. Um, the other piece of this too, is we knew some of this stuff. I don't know that we knew the detail on the Russia stuff, but we knew that he had potentially shady business dealings with the Russians. We knew his sort of illiberal tendencies as it related to immigration and how he treats the free press. And then he got elected anyways. And yeah, he didn't win the popular vote, but like he was constitutionally duly elected in the system enshrined in our constitution. And there are other pieces of the constitution that if he was elected in an illegitimate way, or if he was, if there were illegitimate reasons behind his legitimate election, then those processes need to go through their course to prove that that was true. And that's how, in my mind, at least that's how the constitution actually exercises its check and balance. The constitution doesn't prevent bad things from happening. It can't prevent terrible presidents from assuming the white house. But if they do things that are in violation of the constitution, then when it runs its course, that's the way the check and balance works. Yeah. Cause that's the, the, the one last thing I'd like to say on this is like, I don't think, I think something probably happened with the Russians just because there's way too much smoke for there not to be a fire. At the end of the day, I would suspect that there were people on his campaign routinely discussing with the Russians uh, the operations of the campaign, and the Russians was were at least somewhat informing them of what their operations were um, because there's too much being hidden for there not to be something behind all of it. And that if this is just like a bunch of insane coincidences, that that would be really surprising to me. But I also think that being true, it probably didn't actually affect the outcome of the election. And I think something like James Comey's letter in the last week of the election did. I don't think that this this did, because the only way that it really successfully could have affected the outcome of the election it would be a situation where the russians you know fake news and voter suppression campaigns of fake news were so effective that it turned a lot of otherwise hillary voters into disenchanted voters that made them unwilling to support her and like that's how they pushed Donald over the top and maybe 20 years from now some political scientists will do a paper and prove that that's what happened but I I don't think that that's that, that's not what matters as much because if it worked or it didn't work like there deserves to be retribution for that action because 
at the end of the day, like helping a foreign government, a hostile foreign government, interfere in our election is treason. And you should be punished for that regardless of if it mattered. Because that's the thing that really frustrates me with some Republicans uh, when they talk about this situation. Where it's like, no one is saying that the Russians flipped the election. It's like, yeah, you're damn right. No one is saying that. We're saying that they coordinated with the Russians and it doesn't matter if it didn't work or not. It matters that the coordination happened. Like, I don't care if Donald Trump had lost and coordinated with the Russians, like the book should be thrown at them and they should go to jail if they did that because that is treason. Well, and, and just to close this out, I think the, the testimony of uh, former CIA director, John Brennan, who testified on the Hill um, on May 23rd, he noted, he said that frequently individuals on a treasonous path do not even realize they're on that path until it's going to be too late. Um, so, you know, some of these Trump associates may not even know, have been aware of what they were doing. Um, but I, I think that's another reason to sort of exercise some caution and let this thing take its course. And um, then we'll, you know, when all the facts are on the table, we can decide what the proper constitutional remedy is. Yeah, because when you come at the king, you best not miss. All right. So with that, we'll move on to our second topic this week. So for our second topic, we're going to talk about the emerging contest between two Democrats, two Stacys for the Democratic nomination for governor of Georgia in 2018. Um, so Stacey Evans announced last week and Stacey Abrams announced a couple of weeks ago now. I think she's been, I don't know, we've well, kind of all known for quite a while. Okay, we've all known that she's running for a long time. This is <laughs> such an annoyance of mine. She's still technically testing the waters because oh, all, really? yeah no if you look at all of her websites and all of her like facebook posts it is stacy abrams is considering a run for governor not actually running whereas evans is actually running so i don't know why <laughs> that is the decision that that campaign has made but it is well stacy abrams from peach pod we need you to run for governor so that this segment is not a total waste of time yes um but let's just kind of set the table for this race, assuming that both Stacys are really in this thing. Um, there is a lot of debate among Democrats in Georgia about what the proper path forward for Democrats, for the Democratic Party in the state is for returning the party to power, either in the governor's mansion or, or attaining a majority or close to a majority in the legislature. And I think that these two candidates really kind of lay out different visions potentially of what those strategies are. Um, so Luke, why don't you just kind of start us with what these potentially different options are that both of these Stacys represent for the party? The first thing I'd say is it's very early days for both of these campaigns. And so I imagine there's going to be some change when we see these campaigns. But like I said, right now they're offering very different visions. So far, Stacey Evans has been very much so focused on her record in the state house in mentioning and her own personal biography in mentioning helping people get ahead not letting government be only focused on those in the top echelons of society and trying to help all people have an equal shot at being successful and her work on the hope scholarship program which uh, she's been a longtime member of the education committee and behind a lot of the lessening of Nathan Governor Nathan Deal's uh, hope cuts and actually some full reversals, uh, especially in dealing with the the hope grant that goes towards community college and um, the people looking to go to technical colleges. 
there's been a lot of work from Stacey Evans on that. That's been a big focus of her campaign. And so actually I want to, I just want to pause on that for a second. The, the craziest thing to me about that is that to some extent, Governor Deal's hands were tied and the legislature's hands were tied for some of the hope cuts. I mean, lottery revenues, if I remember correctly, somebody can correct me if I'm wrong, but lottery revenues really were heavily impacted by the recession. And there, you could have tried to raise other revenue, but it, you know, I don't think any uh, observer well, expected a Republican okay. to raise revenue during a recession. That's true, but there's a lot of other ways that you could have handled that program differently. And done some of the things that Stacey Evans was saying that we should do to begin with because a lot of the decisions they made blatantly hurt people of lower income more than it hurt other folks. And so, you know, Hope Scholarship originally for its first two years of existence was merit-based. So that that was another option you could have made and that would have been highly controversial. But just to act like there was no other option besides the very draconian cuts that Nathan Deal did originally, I think is doing a disservice to the debate. But I agree with you. Like there definitely needed to be reform to the program, but I think there's definitely some cost saving things they could have done on the administration of the program. There is, you know, considering the merit based option and a couple other things they could have done instead of what they did. And so don't want to diminish like the actual significance of that debate. But just what's wild about that is that Stacey Evans was a key part in reversing, basically reversing the decision that Governor Deal made. And then Governor Deal and Republicans in the legislature worked with Stacey Evans, who was a very visible partner on this in reversing um, the decisions that were made by Republicans in the legislature. And then that is the, potentially the base of from which Stacey Evans could succeed Governor Deal as governor of Georgia. The, the, just the, how intertwined those two are in that issue um, is just wild to me that that may be part of the reason it's, it's really is at least as far as right now, it's really part of the core of the argument that you can make as to why Stacey Abrams could, or Stacey Evans. Evans could be a good governor. Yeah. I find that very interesting as well. I mean, just to put a pause on this for a second, that's a sign about how sometimes politics in Georgia actually works. Like yeah. this is a great example of how Democrats can come up with good solutions. And that's something that they should do. Cause when, you know, the hope thing is a great example, but also uh, representative Scott Holcomb, a Democrat, you know, came up with the solution to fix the rape kit bill problem in Georgia. And that was something that he was very visible on. And while the eventual bill that was the writer for that language did not have his name on it, it was still his bill. And it's still something he gets a lot of credit for and the Republicans give him credit for. And so that is how politics should work. The idea that if you have a good idea, you have a way to pay for it, you have good policy. It doesn't matter if you have a D or R by your name. What matters is that you can push that idea, convince your colleagues and get it done and signed by the governor. And so to me, this is an example of what I like about politics and what I like about Georgia, because it's not always so blatantly partisan that things like that are impossible. And that's how it feels like in DC. Um, so and that, that is really something I think does not ever get highlighting enough when that does happen. And there's other examples as well. And and to be fair to the Republicans, I mean, 
whoever comes out of the Republican side of this, Brian Kemp, Casey Cagle, or whoever, they should have to defeat a Democrat that had good ideas that pushed them through the legislature in cooperation with Republicans. They should have to defeat a qualified candidate to earn the governorship of Georgia. They shouldn't have to you know, run against somebody who can be considered unaccomplished because the Republicans have systematically stopped every Democrat who could potentially run from governor from ever doing anything good in politics. And that's sort of the like competition of ideas that if if that really was sort of the playing field in Georgia politics, it almost wouldn't matter to well, me. Well, it's not even just Georgia, because this is the thing that frustrates me about so many campaigns, and even Hillary Clinton felt guilty of this a little bit, is that there's not a willingness to engage on the battlefield of ideas. Yeah. And there, everyone wants to engage on the battle, you know, the battlefield of, hey, I have a D by my name, you have an R by your name, that means you're stupid, and we're right, and you're wrong. And instead of actually providing a different vision for what we should be doing because very briefly just because we love to talk about it the you know uh, uh, attempts to appeal, uh, repeal Obamacare why is there not a democratic proposal to fix Obamacare even if it's way insane and they would never go for it at least make an argument for what we should be doing instead and that is what several people in the state house at Georgia have been willing to do and saying, Hey, this is your idea. Well, this is what we think we should be doing. And that's something that's not happening nearly enough on any level of government. And it's part of the reason I think we've seen some actual excitement for this candidacy. Cause I think, I think we need to be fair and start talking about Stacey Abrams here. And part of the reason why we did not start with her and that, that we did not talk about her is because there's been a narrative that, is somewhat frustrating to both of us. And to be clear, you know, I've not made my decision on who I'm supporting in this race yet. But And we'll I'm, all remember that I live in Washington, D.C. Yes, so. <laughs> for now, for now. But maybe you'll be down sooner than you think. Who who knows? Then we can do this in, more, in person more. But at the end of the day, regardless of who I eventually support, I'm just incredibly frustrated that the narrative coming out of not... Georgia um, organizations or Georgia media outlets, but you know national ones, is that Stacey Abrams is the only choice, and she's the only choice because she's you know an African American woman, she's the House Minority Leaguer, and she's been the face for the you know state state House Democrats, and that considering anyone else, it would be like a moral failure, and that's just fundamentally not true. And the thing that frustrates me about that is that does not give her due justice either because she has run the state house in a very specific way. She has a very specific brand of politics. She has a brand of policies and she has a lot of qualifications. I mean, undeniably, whenever she asks a question on the state house floor, you can see the Republicans start to sweat because she is an incredibly smart, incredibly talented state representative. And it frustrates me that that's not the narrative that is being pursued and that, wow, this is going to be a great primary between these two really smart democratic women that are really accomplished in the state house in a conservative state. It's just been incredibly one-sided and organizations like democracy for America that have already endorsed Abrams is insane to me because there is the possibility that someone that that organization would like more runs. Like this is so early for any organization to endorse before any of the campaigns have materialized. Like I just, I don't understand 
why that's happening. And the last thing I'll say before I let you talk, Kyle, because I can see that you want to say something. Well, actually, is, let me let me butt in real quick okay, because I just okay. want to I just want to get this quote out there. This is the narrative that we're talking about, um, particularly. And we've talked about this just the two of us about this article from the Nation by Steve Phillips, who is a, a apparently a Democratic operative. I don't think he's from Georgia. I couldn't figure out where he was from, but he said. Um, if you are Steve, yell at us, and we'll, we'll have you on. Yeah, um, but he said, talking about Abrams' candidacy, he said, will the progressive community rally to the cause, which is electing Abrams, by removing any necess- unnecessary obstructions in Abrams' way and making her candidacy into a strategic national crusade? Sadly, the buildup to this race brings into sharp relief some of the reasons why America has never elected an African-American woman governor. And then Phillips later goes on to specifically call out Stacey Evans um, and sort of imply that she is an unnecessary obstruction to Abrams being elected as governor. And if you are a progressive who was upset about the way the National Democratic Party handled the 2016 Democratic primary, where and I don't, I don't know that this is totally fair, but there was a strong belief among progressives that Hillary Clinton was the anointed candidate to frame Stacey Abrams um, as if or she faces anyone, or anyone or, or anyone um, as if they have to face another candidate. They face an unnecessary obstruction in their way to make their candidacy a strategic national crusade. A. The governor of Georgia is not a strategic national crusade. It is the governor of Georgia who signs and structures the state budget. It, they are the leader of politics in the state of Georgia, and they are the ones who have to answer the toughest questions about all of the things the government does in Georgia. It is not a national crusade, and it is not one that somebody gets anointed to. I don't care who they are. It's just incredibly unfair, I think, to both Stacey Abrams and Stacey Evans to look at this candidacy in that way and totally pulls out from Stacey, Stacey Abrams all of the things that you said about how she has been a good legislator and a good leader in the legislature of Demo- of the Democratic caucus on the House side. Exactly, because the thing is, at the end of the day, one of the biggest problems that we've had in Georgia among Democratic voters is the idea, and this is something I've seen since like 2014, probably earlier, you know, before I was paying attention as much as I do now, is every single cycle, no matter how good a candidate like Jason Carter or Michelle Nunn were, people were really pissed off that it felt like a coronation, that it felt like everyone else got pushed out, there was no debate, there was no conversation about if this person is the best one for us, and that the state party kind of winked and nudged and shut doors to other candidates to prevent them from running. And that is the last thing we need right now in this environment for another candidate to be coronated uh, in in this race, and I don't think that is to the benefit, like we just said, of the candidates either, because both of them have a very well fleshed out different view of what should be important. Um, I've heard Stacey Abrams speak a lot recently since she's been again. You're running for governor, we all know, but considering a run for governor, uh, that you know her view is that. Government should not be a dirty word anymore in the same way that, you know, uh, JFK said liberal is not a dirty word, that you should pretty loudly and 
proudly promote that you are an advocate for government and advocate for the uh, positive things that government can do. And, you know, to, to my frustration, I do know I saw a quote of her uh, mentioning the fascists that sort of surround the, uh, the Trump administration, which, again... I, I, that always disrupts me the wrong way. But at the end of the day, my, my, the point I'm trying to make is like Abrams is like trying to make and be the progressive in the race and more, more than progressive because progressive is not fair. I guess, I guess the further to the left candidate, like she's very clearly trying to be uh, actually resistor. That's what she's trying to be. Not the progressive. She's trying to be the resistor in the race. And that she's trying to be that the, you know, Trump presidency is a fundamental affront to the country and that that's a problem that needs to be handled in that way. Whereas to me, Stacey Evans, again, very early days for both of these campaigns. Stacey Evans really seems to be trying to run on her record and the things that she has accomplished. Whereas Abrams is trying to put forward a vision for what we should be doing in Georgia instead of what the current thing is. And I have to admit like both of those things like neither one of them is fundamentally more interesting or more valuable they're both they're both very appealing yeah like they're 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 both very appealing there's benefits to both because as i mentioned on you know the tv episode we do i'm frustrated that like more presidencies fictional and real don't have something like the new deal their great society where they're actually making an argument for like this is how i like to reshape everything like there's so many caretaker presidencies caretaker governorships that it frustrates me when you don't see more of this like hey this is a big way i want to reshape everything we do and even if i disagree with it sometimes like i just like to see that initiative and it seems to me while it might not be a big change for like New York or anything, like Abrams is leaning more towards that, like, hey, let's reshape things in a bigger way, reshape how the state works, reshape how we see things. And Evans is more towards this is my record, this is the things I've done, I want to keep doing stuff like that, and that's why I want to be your governor. So it's interesting to me. And it frustrates me that that's not the narrative. The narrative is anyone in Abrams' way is wrong, and you should not do that. But it's also... It's helpful, like a, like a clear primary where we, you know, Democrats have two or maybe a few more candidates in the field and we, you know, accept the fact that these are some of the best Democratic politicians in Georgia. Um, they should get to have a real debate where they get to disagree with each other, where they get to critique each other's records and do it in a fair way. Um, but do it in a way that allows people watching the process to really understand the differences between them. Um, and that if that process is impeded, then you have, again, some of the other criticisms that progressives made about some of the anointment of Hillary Clinton was that, you know, Bernie Sanders at the time was seen to be as more popular than Hillary Clinton, just personally likable and all that. And and there's gender dynamics there. I don't want to get into all that right now, but the, the underlying issue of whether or not that was a real primary or not. Um, the people who supported Bernie Sanders felt that it wasn't and felt that all of these downsides that, you know, the Bernie folks knew about Hillary that ultimately contributed to her losing to Donald Trump. They were the ones saying, we've been talking about this the whole time. And one of the narratives behind Stacey Abrams campaign is that part of the way in which to bring Democrats back to power in the South is to register minority voters and to try to really make it the key focus of the party to energize those voters, get them to the polls and base 
policies and ideas and this vision around activating a, a base of of non-white voters. And that in itself is an admirable and important goal for the Democratic Party. The Democratic Party very clearly represents the interests of African Americans and Latinos and Asians much better, I think, than Republicans do. Um, But the underlying part of that is that Stacey Abrams led the New Georgia Project, which was the voter registration effort, which was speaking directly to this goal. But lost in all of this was this long creative loafing article that I'll link to in the show notes that basically took a look at the new Georgia project after the 2014 midterm election where Jason Carter and Michelle Nunn had ultimately disappointing finishes. Um, It was a wave against Democrats partially, you know, particularly a wave against the Obama administration. Um, But it's just not clear what the outcome was on all the voter registration efforts of the New Georgia Project. Stacey Abrams went around and raised a lot of money for it. She's known as a pretty prolific fundraiser, and and she put that skill into this effort. But it's not clear that that money was well spent, that all these voters got actually registered. And the big political fight that a lot of y'all may remember um, was this fight between Stacey Abrams and Brian Kemp when he was Secretary of State, and whether or not the allegation that Abrams and the New Georgia or the the voter registration groups were making was that Kemp was like purposefully or maybe just through incompetence, not processing these voter applications correctly. And I don't know that we know the truth of whether or not that was the fault of Brian Kemp or whether Stacey Abrams oversold the number of registrations that that group actually collected. I don't think that we know the answer to that. And if you just bury that issue and don't allow that to be kind of a part of the Democratic primary process, then you may not actually get the answer as to whether or not Stacey Abrams is the person who is energizing minority voters and is actually going to get them registered and get them to the polls and get them to vote for her. Yeah, and I think that's a you know a, a big problem because at the end of the day, you know, the decision about which one of these candidates to support, I think the new Georgia project is voter, sorry, the new Georgia voter project is going to be very, very important to what decision you make as a Georgia voter, because that was one of the biggest things that Abrams has pushed to do because, and this is something that she said, you know, publicly on various occasions, she's never seen, and I, you know, I will say I disagree with this view she has said that it's not her view to try to get a candidate into every single race for state house um, as the state house minority leader. She has said that it is her job to support the candidates and races that um, they think they can win and to push candidates to those positions. Um, I've always been a you know Howard Dean fifty state tragedy uh, kind of guy. So to me, I would hope that our leaguers would have a one hundred and eighty state house seat strategy and try to flip all of them, or at least contending all of them, even if they knew they couldn't win, run a candidate. Um, but you Should know, they run anybody for the state Senate? Everyone on the everyone who listens to this show knows our opinion of the state Senate. The state Senate <laughs> is awful, and it is a dumpster fire, and they sort of like like that fact about themselves. Um, yeah, they should run, you know, it's not, it, it, yes, the state Senate should run people, but um, at the end of the day, that's not the state House Minority Leader's job. That's True. the state you know, house, uh, minority, uh, sorry, state Senate yeah. minority leaders. Job. Steve Henson. Yeah. Steve Henson. Um, so Abrams is political accomplishments as leader is that I think we've gained maybe two seats under her term. We definitely lost some and we've kind of regained some now. Uh, 
so I think it averages out to about two that we've picked up. Um, so as a leaguer of the Democratic Party and her role, if she is governor, she will have a role as that. You know, the new Georgia Voger Project is the main thing that she's done. So I think getting to the bottom of what happened there will be very important. I know part of that, and this is an ongoing thing in Georgia and something I continuously like to bring up because it's one of those little ways that voters get disenfranchised that people don't talk about enough, is like in Georgia, a way that a lot of people get uh, off the rolls is that like their records have to match what, their other records say. And so, you know, you have Georgia voters who um, have some pretty interesting names that have like apostrophes or, you know, have dashes or are spelt differently than how some other people or what the more common spelling of names are. And so if any of those records don't match because either the voter themselves filled it out wrong or very importantly to point out that the staffer on any of the other government bureaucracy, you know, bureaucracies makes a mistake, then that person, it's very hard for them to get registered. And that's a pretty hard thing to overcome. And so, you know, getting to the bottom of like what happened with that project and what was going on there will be very important to evaluating if she's going to be the right choice or not. And so those sorts of debates, that's where I want to see this race go. We have, you know, about a year until that primary. Um, so I that's what I want to see. I want to see a smart, substantive debate because, yes, it is incredibly frustrating that a country as diverse as the United States has not had a female African-American governor. But should that supersede every other consideration? No. And should organizations decide this early to endorse folks, I I disagree yet again. So at the end of the day, what I want to see and what I think the Democratic Party needs, even if I ultimately choose to vote for Stacey Abrams over Stacey Evans or if any other candidate gets in that governor's race, we absolutely, as the Democratic Party of Georgia, have to have a debate about how we are going to handle the future of the Democratic Party and what we want to do if we are in charge of the state again. And that's not going to happen if you just coordinate someone again. And that's not what I'm interested in seeing. So I hope that that is not what this race turns into. Well, there is a long way to go. Um, so we're, we're in the very, very early stages. You can still consider if you want to run for governor. Uh, and if you do, announce it on Peach Pog. Yeah, come on the show. We'd love to have you. Um, but with that, I think we will wrap up the show for the week and we will talk to you guys again next week. Bye guys. That's our show for the week. If you like what you heard, you can share the show with a friend and go over to iTunes and give us a rating and a review. It really helps other people find our show. Our interns this week are Alana Pierce and Courtney Clark, and we will talk to you next week. Take care y'all.